Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for coming out on such a really miserable, wet, filthy night. Um, it's lovely to see you all. Uh, my name is Beth Hannon. I'm the director of the forum. Uh, I see some familiar faces, so again, I apologise for saying the same thing I say every week, which is really boring. But for the new people, uh, the forum is a non-profit organisation. We put on events like this uh, once a week, all the way throughout term. They're always free, they're always open to everyone, and uh, I encourage you to come to all of them, or as many as you can make. Um, so the forum relies on uh, the goodwill of people like yourselves who donate to us, so if you feel generous, I'm sorry, if you feel generous uh, and you want to support public philosophy, uh, please consider donating to us. You can find a link to our Just Giving page on our website, where you will also find a huge archive of our previous events as podcasts that you can listen to as well. Uh, just a couple of housekeeping issues. Uh, do turn off the volume on your phone, um, but no need to turn off your phone completely. You can tweet along with us if you want. There'll be some people live tweeting the event. And this is being recorded for a podcast, so if you do ask a question, just be aware that your voice is going to be recorded and put out into the internet forevermore. Uh, that's enough for me. Let me hand you over to our far more interesting panel of speakers. Thank you. Thanks, Beth. Uh, my name's Danielle Sands and I'm a fellow at the Forum. I'm going to be chairing this evening's event in which our three speakers will be discussing being disabled. Let me introduce you to our speakers. Fiona Kumari Campbell is Senior Lecturer in the School of Education and Social Work at the University of Dundee. Professor Hannah Thompson is Professor of French and Critical Disability Studies at Royal Holloway University of London. And Claire Jones is lecturer in the history of medicine at the University of Kent. Hannah, perhaps you can start us off. Okay. When we're talking about disability, what is it that we're talking about? Um, okay, so disability for me now, currently, is, is a, di- a difference from um, a normative or a, um, a kind of expected body. Um, <coughs> In previously, uh, and actually still for, for many people, it's, it's, it tends to be described as a negative difference or a bad difference. Um, I would see it much more as just a, um, maybe even a, 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 a neutral difference or perhaps even a positive difference from, mm-hmm. um, from a normative, normalised body. Yeah. And it's, um, if I could say something about that, I think it's interesting because... Disabilities never emerged in isolation from other hmm. forms of cl- classifying practices. I, I think it was uh, in the 1970s a sociologist by the name of Mildred Blackster, I think she was a UK sociologist, she talked about that throughout history that when the definitions of who the poor are um, change, that often that again kind of flows through to um, you know, definitions of who are beggars or, or, or people who are su- subhuman. Um, and the like. Um, I, I probably would also like to extend it in the sense that uh, at different points in time, and I'm not a historian, folks, but at, at different points in time, um, uh, lots of other groups have come under the category of disability. For example, Aristotle described, described women as mutilated um, men. Mm. Uh, you know, and, the, and, and there's actually been a, a kind of... There's traces throughout history of women being seen as disabled, that they're ruled by emotion and not by... By reason, um, you know, even things like premenstrual syndrome, which I've written about, the idea that uh, you know women shouldn't be in the workplace because we go become deranged each month, um, and of course, there's the classic where people of colour have been. Um, uh, there's an overlay between racism and ableism here, and I'll talk about ableism later. But but that idea that there. Um, 
uh, blacks in particular uh, disabled the idea of kind of being primitive and a throwback mm. and in fact that's where the whole freak show there's a, quite often an overlay mm. between people of colour and disabled people being exhibited but mm. for me the linchpin mm. is the idea of being abled what does that mean? Mm-hmm. I think that's right I think disabled is always seen in conjunction with abled and you can't look at one without the mm. other mm. Um, I'm obviously a medical historian but I'm also a social and cultural historian and so the kind of the thing I would always say is that disability is historically contingent and socially constructed at a particularly given point in time and so before, before the 19th century, arguably, disability didn't mean anything, and it wasn't even a, a term, it wasn't even a word, it wasn't normative. Mm. It, um, it was uh, people were seen for specific conditions, if you like, the, the lame or the crippled, but it wasn't under this catch-all term disability, which doesn't really mean anything. Mm. It's just all this label that is applied now for normative for normative purposes, but that normativity comes from state control and the ability to kind of see who is deserving and non-deserving of essentially welfare, and from the medical profession when they are professionalising themselves to see, right, well, what needs to be fixed, Mm. what needs to be cured, it's the non-abled. So disabled is a convenient catch-all category for um, terms of... Uh, a, a, a kind of control, yeah. not to be too Foucauldian about it, but no, that is kind of. But is it is that a term that we should get rid of then? Oh, absolutely not. <clears throat> I mean, I you know, I, that's my view. I think um, I think one of the things that gives me the shits, and sorry, I'm an Australian folk, so we, we cut <laughs> to the chase here, um, is is the idea, aren't we? We're all disabled, you know. People, are, that's often a response. Oh, are we all disabled or we'll become disabled? I mean, I think variability is important. I was just going to say, like, a lot of this stuff is associated with human ranking, um, and it may not be state, it may be cultural. Um, for example, the caste system um, that um, appears in South Asia, which is what I also do work in, um, is, uh, involves various forms of ranking in which people are at the, the bottom of the caste system could be considered as disabled. But I think um, I'm actually very proud to be disabled. I'm really, I call myself a cripple. I kind of sex it up a bit. But I think the other thing is in our Western system, and Wendy Brown talks about this, the way that we often have different protected groups, right, or in America we call them minority groups, you ha- um, in order to access rights or benefits, you have to show you've suffered. That's how often you get protections in law. Um, so I think we need to use... Dis- well, I use disabled strategically. Like, you need to use the label, whether you believe in the label, because often we ask to tick boxes to describe our situation. Um, that's not a good time to have an argument, particularly if you want to have a, <laughs> you know, a service or a benefit or whatever. So you get locked into this where... You know, in some systems, like I saw one with a staff survey once, and they said, if you wear hearing aids or glasses, um, don't class, don't don't tick the disability box. Which was really interesting about how you can, in one situation, be seen as disabled, and in another, not. So yes, it's a lot of it's, as you say, social construction, but um, but also my sort of my disability has shaped who I am. So mm. actually, I'm proud to be disabled. Mm. But there's, a, there's such a, um, a kind of assumption in society that disability is something that, that, sh- that we would like to get rid of or we would like to solve or we would like mm. to cure 
that it's really important that those of us who are disabled um, own that with pride um, and kind of uh, try and express through the language that we use that actually there's nothing um, lesser about my, my experience of living or the way that I do things or my kind of approach to life just because I happen to function in a non-visual way. So I, um, all the medical kind of dis- um, descriptions of blindness will talk about either um, partially sighted people or visually impaired people. But I always describe myself as partially blind um, because I like the, the fact that I'm not completely blind. I haven't, I haven't achieved the ideal of total blindness, but I'm not completely sighted. So I talk about... Um, blind people and non-blind people because it, it, it's, it, mm. it changes the kind of negative positive um, assumptions that we have around blindness um, and it, it, it suggests that maybe sightedness is, not, it, it is a disability as well or a diff- at least it's a, different, it's a different way of being which is actually the, yeah. the point of all of, this, all of this right so mm. um, I think if, well, we need to get away from this idea that, that disability is a problem um, a tragedy uh, something that needs to be fixed, solved, cured it's, I'm not saying it's not inconvenient. Um, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's irritating to, to have to do things in a different way, to take longer to do things. It's more expensive. But that's not necessarily to do with disabilities. That's to do with the way that society is organised. Yeah, I think you that's know? a really... Can I say that's a yeah. really good point? I think we wouldn't say, you know, because there's racism in our community that you automatically would assume something like blackness is to be eliminated. We, no. deal, we deal with the racism. Right. And disability does matter. I mean, I became disabled in 1981. I was 18. I was at university. And things have changed now, but it was assumed I would drop out of the university. Mm. I had a bed booked in a nursing home, and I worked in what's called a sheltered workshop, so I got paid 50 cents a day to put mm. lids on top of bottles and mm-hmm. knives and forks in airline bags. So there wasn't. So it does matter. I mean, it took me 10 years to get a degree, and, again, the assumption is that people like you shouldn't do these mm. things. Yeah. So, so we need to be out there doing these things because, you know, every day we, we, we pass people in the street who have a different vision of disability and who, who's, who, who know people who are dealing with newly acquired disabilities and, and are facing this kind of um, negativization, I suppose. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a, a kind of assumption or lack of, um, lack of positive expectation. Mm. Claire, I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about the medical history of disability. Do you think this, this medicalization of disability is something we need to move away from? Um, yeah, I think... Obviously, with the medical model and the medical uh, medical history, uh, adapts adopts this medicalisation of uh, disability very strongly and um, sees disability as something inherently wrong and something to be fixed. And I think that has to be traced back to the history of medicine as a discipline itself, which comes into the 1950s as its own discipline at Johns Hopkins University, which is the greatest medical school in the world at the time, when there's a post-war positivism about medical achievements and what can be done. So the medical kind of perception of that um, disability is something to be cured fits in with this medical idealism of the post-Second World War period and doesn't really disappear until... Um, something like thalidomide and um, with real critics of medical progress and progressivism by 
by people like Evan Illich and um, Foucault who say that if you, if you medicalise things, you turn people into patients or victims mm. uh, that need curing. So mm. the more you, the more you medicalise something, the more, the more there is a problem. Um, and arguably you can see that with um, statistics of things like, um, you know, asylum admissions. You build, in the 19th century, the asylum movement with hundreds of asylums across the country, and immediately there are uh, a massive spike in the number of people that are categorised as mentally ill. Does that mean there are more mentally ill people in the country, or does that mean that you're categorising people under this new medicalised term? Um, so that is where medical history started because obviously the people that were doing medical history were medics themselves who believed very much in this vision. Shifted to this very negative um, view of medicine and Ivan Illich actually calls the medical profession the disabling profession. Mm -hmm. It's disabling um, in the 1970s. And then um, I think into the 90s and onwards, I think medical history has been very influenced by... Um, disability activism and disability studies where the lived patient experience uh, or patient is even a medical term itself and shouldn't be We used. are patient, by the way. Yeah. Extremely patient. <laughs> patient in that sense, yeah. Uh, but the lived experience is taken much more seriously and that's shifted um, with the rise of uh, bottom-up approaches and the social history of medicine movement as a whole alongside... Um, disability studies and disability activism. So where we are now, I think we're at an interesting point in medical history where um, the lived experience of those with disabilities is extremely important as being recovered from the historical record when previously it was extremely, like, mm. uh, totally neglected. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we need to understand the medicalised history because that's how we get the stigma that we... Have. Yeah, yeah and, it, and it might have changed. And I mean, medical history might have, might be shifting, but medicine isn't necessarily. Yeah. So there are still practice. The practice of medicine is still about cure and yeah. finding solutions to problems yeah. that, that are only pop, only seen as problems because then they could be cured. Yeah. And so, it also distorts things. Yeah. And I'm thinking about because um, I do work in Sri Lanka, um, and Sri Lanka has one of the highest suicide rates in the world, and has really high levels of um, mental illness, and I'll put that in inverted commas. But what's interesting is, you know, you get even culturally different countries having to adopt things like the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Mm. You could do a rap song to the um, DSM or the ICD-10, or actually it's ICD-11 now. <laughs> um, that's the International <coughs> Classification for Diseases, folks. Um, and so they're kind of external things coming in. And one of the things around mental health, for example, um, or mental difference, emotional difference, is that um, there are different ways of even medically understanding that. You know, certainly in the Sri Lankan context, for example, mental health and, or mental illness is seen as a, a communal expression. It's not individualised, the idea yeah. that a whole village or community... And I think what the sad bit is... Um, even currently, getting your point that medicine needs to talk to anthropology, sociology to have mm. these kinds of conversations because I think there are some things that we need relief from and cure. I don't think anyone... Sometimes people think that when we say that we're opposed to the medical model, we're opposed to 
um, treatments. No, no, um, no I think many of us who suffer so, from pain yeah. and whatever, but but I think it's an assumption that um, uh, that certain kinds of human variability should be eliminated. That's where it gets yeah, dangerous. that's absolutely the right way to put it. Yeah. Mm. Hannah, you mentioned, you said that we should think about being disabled as, as a neutral or even a positive mm. difference. Perhaps you can tell us a bit about this idea of it being a positive difference. Yeah, so there's a quite... Um, um, an interesting um, idea that's come out of critical disability studies, which is the idea of disability gain, um, and you can also talk about deaf gain or blindness gain, um, and it's this idea that disability actually brings, um, well, it's a, it's a positive experience in its own right, but it's also actually beneficial to the non-disabled community, because it um, opens uh, non-disabled people up to different ways of doing things. So um, in the case of blindness gain, um, we might talk about the audiobook as a really good example. So it's a, the, the talking books mm. were, were first invented for blind people, by, by blind people, with blind people, for blind people, um, after the First World War. Um, and now they've become, in the last, maybe in the last five years or so, they've become, they've become completely mainstream mm. and... Um, um, non-disabled people are seeing the benefits of, of not having to, to engage visually with text. You know, you can you can you can um, listen to them uh, in the car or when you're going to sleep. And I mean, podcasts is another example that is a non-visual technology which is suddenly becoming becoming hugely popular. And that suggests that we're not actually as wedded to the visual as we like to think we are. And therefore, blindness be- suddenly doesn't become such a such a problem because it's. It's it's a way, blindness is is actually evidence that we don't need to we don't need the visual we don't need to rely on so much on the visual in order to survive or to, to enjoy life. Um, so I think yeah I think it's really important to kind of really focus on the the, the, the what disability as a, as a as a as an experience but also as a critical position can bring to. Um, to, to everyone, to, to the to the whole community. Mm. Yeah, I would agree. Nancy Mears um, is, is a uh, poet in her own right, but um, uh, towards the years when she was retired, she she had um, MS, multiple sclerosis, and um, so she wrote some really interesting stuff. And one of her books is called um, "Waste Height in the World," and it's about her use of a wheelchair. Um, and the gain for me is actually there are so many different ways of experiencing human. Mm. Um, it's like, and the best way I can explain it for those of you who are not familiar with the disability experience, the best way you can probably capture that is if you can recall maybe the first time you went to a country or a culture that was different from your own. And it, just the things you take for granted, you know, totally blows you out of the water. Um, you know, that things are, are done differently. And, um, and certainly for myself, I'm normally a wheelchair user. I mean, uh, how I experience the, the, the topography, the geography, uh, how I experience movement, uh, what I see, which, by the way, is people's backsides. <laughs> so <laughs> it's an interesting experience that you're seeing. But, but you height, and we've put... Um, you know, there's been work done on the differences, mm. the height experiences, which gets... So these are other ways... Um, experiencing um, it might be the kind of um, with some disabilities like I'm thinking I've got a friend with Tourette's syndrome that sense of um, um, experiencing touch and tactility uh, picking up on things that you and I might not pick up on in terms of 
a vibe, gesture, mm. all those things. Mm. What do you think we need to do to, to kind of shift our, the, the general social perspective of, of disability being a negative thing? Do you think we need to... Um, is, it, is it levels at a conceptual... Is it changes at a conceptual level, at a linguistic level? How do we make those kind of changes? Well, I mean, I've got my... So my work is in the area... I started off in disability studies, and I'm still in disability studies, critical disability studies, but I guess... Um, you know, disabled people are one of the most studied groups of uh, people in the world. And um, there is... Uh, I don't want to be flippant about it, but most of the strategies are in a number of countries has been what I call the feel-good strategy. It's just about changing people's attitudes. Now, if it was simple as changing attitudes, you know, we could have some um, amazing kind of marketing campaign, maybe the people who did the Brexit vote, I don't know, um, to just to kind of, like, you know have some kind of uh, re-education. But actually, I think it, it, it actually it's not about disability. For me, it is a deeply conceptual level, and that's what makes it difficult because it's complex. For me, actually, because we talked about earlier that disability through history has changed that marker, um, and it keeps and it moves along, and, and sometimes people move in and out of categories. For me, actually, instead of studying disability, we should flip it now, I'm not talking saying it's the direct opposite, but I think we should be focusing on the idea, which also has changed through time, of abledness mm-hmm. and, or ablement, because that has changed through time. And we all, from the moment we're born, um, some of you might have heard about it, those of you who've had kids, the APGAR score. So within yeah. five minutes of a kid being born, there is a scale that actually ranks them in terms of the meant to do this and the meant to do that. Um, so we're actually born into this world that says, have you made the grade? <laughs> do you make the grade? So this idea of ableness, and, you know, for those of us who, certainly in my case, as you get older, you kind of, you sort of think the whole idea of ageing, what it means, um, you know, the pursuit of beauty, what it means to be a productive person, all these kinds of things. Mm. So actually for me, because some people benefit from particular conceptualisations of ableness... But it is also linguistic. Um, I think that probably everything probably needs to happen at the same time. So mm-hmm. um, there's, for me, there's, there'd be two things that would need to happen really quickly. And there's a, a radical shift in the way we use language. So changing, as I said, trying to valorise, revalorise the, the, the negative terms. So make turn blindness, take it, take all its negative metaphorical connotations away, and 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 use it in a positive way. But also, um, it's about representation as well, because mm-hmm. un- until there are disabled people, until um, seeing a disabled person on television is not remarkable, and until um, a disabled person has a plot line which is not uniquely about their disability, then we st- small work still needs to be done to, to mm-hmm. just put, make sure that you know that, that that people are not surprised to see disabled people um, on television uh, in in positions of authority, um, you know, out and about, um, until, until, it, until we don't kind of notice anymore, then we haven't, we haven't done enough, I don't think. Mm. Yeah, even in the classroom, I ask mm. my students, I teach social work students, and I ask them, I, I don't know what, what induced it, but I just kind of said, oh, have, have any of you been taught by a person with an, uh, a, a, what I call a, an a appa- apparent disability mm. that something you can see? And it was interesting. I think one person said that they... Uh, but it's, it's like it's having that exposure so it's not something weird, mm. you know, because mm. that's... 
But there's also this, there's a huge, there's a kind of a fear thing um, that able, uh, non-disabled people are, um, are don't 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 necessarily know what what the disability mm, or what to do. Yeah. So so there's a kind of um, there's, there's very strong feelings of kind of embarrassment and fear, and also um, you know Rosemary Garland Thompson makes a really good point in her book um, on staring that. We um, we all kind of know that at some point our, our bodies are going to let us down and we are going to become disabled. You know, if we live long enough, we will become disabled, um, and it's a terror of kind of that happening, which makes us not want to connect or engage with disability and kind of just keep a bit of a distance. And that's why staring is such a kind of powerful um, uh, response. You know, you stare at something different, um, but you don't engage with it. So. I think it was interesting what you said about representation and I think that's also true in terms of who are academic historians Mm. as well Mm. but also about the subject matter and how um, histories of disability are written and by who and from what perspective so I mean it's quite a new field Mm. um, very recent couple of decades Um, and actually my US colleagues disability history is much kind of newer and less developed which I find quite interesting um, uh, considering the kind of disability um, activist movement in in some aspects of US culture particularly on university campuses Mm. Um, so representation is I think extremely important in terms of what how how does this people with disabilities are represented in in his, historical text mm-hmm. who the historians are um, wouldn't it you know have a disabled historian on TV uh, would be marvelous also representations in museums mm-hmm. uh, rather than stories mm-hmm. about um, this is the great explorer this is the you know mm-hmm. this is the first this is um, and the Royal College of Physicians did that really great exhibition about um, pulling out works of art of disabled uh, people from the past and displayed that. But again, that's problematic. It's at the Royal College of Physicians. <laughs> it's medicalised again. And as you say, it becomes um, about the disability and not about the individuals and, and their own achievements and their other kind of characteristics, mm. I guess. So, well, you've, and you've pointed to a really interesting d- dilemma, and I don't think actually whatever critical disability studies is, I mean, there's people who work outside of it, but we haven't had the debates that some other marginal communities have had about, because um, you talked about who, who does the writing. Yeah, who does um, the writing. And, yeah. and it's interesting about the, you know, the, the, there hasn't been the debate about, for example, which, within many communities, whether it be the queer community or, um, you know, people of colour communities about... Um, who, 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 what the idea of vo- a voice, who can speak for whom. Yeah. Um, and they're, fe- they're feisty debates, folks. I mean, they are really feisty debates, but, and how people are positioned. Um, and that has some real implications. And, I mean, certainly a couple of us have tried to raise it in disability studies because there are a number of, um, and I won't mention names, there are some very prominent disability studies scholars who, for want of a better word, haven't... Um, haven't been upfront about their, how they position themselves along that continuum, mm. and it's not. And people get quite defensive. They, mm. It's kind of like, well, you know, are you saying that only disabled people can mm. can write the histories mm. or mm. or um, do the sociology or whatever? And that's not what 
actually is being said. Certainly from my perspective, mm. that's not what's being said, but it's about the fact of um, positioning because we're in this dilemma because on one hand it's like, well, there's a big push for testimony and people speaking out and doing the academic work, but actually it's, it's, it gets bloody tiring to mm. do all the heavy lifting yeah. and should it be everybody's responsibility, but yeah. there are different tiers of that. Yeah. I don't know what your, yeah. what's your view on that. Yeah, I think it's an interesting one. I think history is a particularly interesting discipline to to consider that from because there's this, um, I guess, facade, for want of a better word, of objectivity around the discipline of history that we don't uh, we only look at what the sources tell us and we interpret those, and so it doesn't matter on your individual circumstances because you come to the sources with a clean mind and uh, you interpret them objectively without any kind of bias or personal opinion and experience. But of course we know that that's not how history works. No, because women have been erased from history yeah, and absolutely. people of absolutely. colour and all the losers of history. So the first lesson 101 of history is history is about you, history mm. is about me, I write history about me. Um, which also is Foucauldian. I would never say I'm a Foucauldian, but I seem to be drawn on it. But it, but it is. So there is um, an unrecognised um, subjectivity in history writing that I think needs to be quite openly acknowledged if we're going to get any further with this kind of tension mm. um, between who, who, who should be the one that writes histories of certain kinds of people. Um, and as you say, it's not... Um, exclusively about people with disabilities it's about um, race gender class um, and other, other other factors as well um, I don't know I don't know what the answer is to that but certainly well having a conversation like during tonight's a good mm. a good yeah I think we have to because these things also have uh, implications for the job market like particularly in areas where there are jobs in disability studies or specific stuff around disability it's it's really hard for um, disabled academics to yeah. sometimes get access to those. Not, again, not that you can assume just because you're disabled you'd be interested in disability because some people, it's no, the worst absolutely. thing that they could think of. Yeah, um, they're far more interested in other things, but yeah. I, I, I had something peer-reviewed. It was quite interesting to bring in my this kind of little anecdote. Um, I was writing from a medical perspective, so obviously the history of medicine, it... it, it, it it comes across from the kind of fixing the patient kind of perspective. Mm. And that was taken by a disability scholar as I was valorising that approach. And I tried to say, we have to understand the history. My response was, we have to understand this history of stigmatisation and medicalisation if we're going to move forward. And, I, and then I... I, I, I mean, my perspective on bringing... Uh, on my interest in it primarily is, is my own family background... Um, my, one side of my family are congenitally deaf and I felt like do I need to have yeah. that mm. do I need to have that personal positioning to say this is my stake in the game as it were um, or is the history enough or, I, I don't know I don't know maybe you notice different things because I was just going to say it's you talked about raw texts and I guess that's scientific stuff but um, I mean you're dealing with documents I don't know lots about it. Well, I do know. I read a lot of history. I don't know much about history. But it, it's what you notice or what... Yes. Which bits jump out at you. And, and yeah. like, like, again, 
I've, I've got a piece, uh, is a, it's a theology piece, but it's history in the sense it's an old book, yeah? <laughs> so it's looking at um, the person of Moses, who's really important to Christianity, Islam and Judaism, and the fact is Moses has a disability. And I was thinking, you know, along a whole lot of other characteristics, according to the text, the different sources, and a lot of the sources try to explain this away, by the way, to say, oh, an important, powerful man like that couldn't have had disability, God forbid, you know, something like that. But what I was thinking of was it's what you notice, but also I was thinking about how do you tell that story? Because that's actually a powerful story, the idea that a disabled person can be a leader. Like, how would that... That could have potentially, if that story had been told differently, yeah. changed three religious traditions. Yeah, absolutely. So, mm. I think it's just, just as there's multiple lived experiences, there's multiple histories that can mm. be told using the same evidence, using the same sources. And some of my favourite kind of disability historians, if you like, say... The evidence is there if you look for it. It's everywhere. It just hasn't been drawn upon. And you need to notice it. And how do you notice it? And I think having public discussions, um, more representation, more debates. But also having the Academy take this side of history more seriously yeah. as well. You know, it's, 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 it can be very hard if you're working in an area which is, which is not taken seriously by, a, by fellow academics or is marginalised or is kind of thought of as maybe... Just, tokenistic or you know whatever it is so I think it, it's up to universities to um, create um, disability studies programs and to staff them properly and to resource them and to make it you know I mean I was looking I was I was filling in a questionnaire online about my research specialisms and it, it was using the AHRC kind of categories mm-hmm. I couldn't find disability studies mm-hmm. it's not there I found, ge- I found gender studies I found um, race studies wow. I, disability studies is not listed I looked under um, the arts, I looked under literature, I looked under sociology, I looked under politics, I couldn't find it. Mm. I suspect if it's there, it's probably under education. Mm. Sometimes it gets under social care or yeah, something Yeah, exactly, like that. and that's not the kind of disability <laughs> studies that I do. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, it's like an invisible discipline. Mm. So. Mm. Fiona, you mentioned this idea of ableism earlier. Could we talk a little bit about how that manifests? Well, I think, you know, it's... it's Firstly, it is really, really complex. Um, but I, I, you know, and I've been working since 2001 on trying to tease this out. I, I, firstly, I don't think the idea of abledness or a, um, being abled or ability, because we use that word as well, I don't think it's a fixed constant. That's the first thing. It changes, um, not just across history, but across cultures, but even in the very moment. But it's to do with the kind of practices that we have. And, it, and it's to do with... Um, uh, ethos, ethics, values, things that are valued, things that are seen, for example, to use a scientific language, um, which I now do use because um, this is an important phrase, the idea of what species typical functioning, mm. you know, um, which is what the... Um, so, so I think it's... Um, and it does, and, and the thing is, is, even this idea, I mean, you get this phrase, see, see, see the, uh, the person, not the disability, or focus on the ability, not the disability. So or, always this trashing of disability. And actually, I think the problem is actually we focus on ability too much. Um, this is not to say that we should um, be kind of encouraging people to reach their potential, but it's, um, you know, and where the complexities come into it, and it's in medicine, the idea of improvement, the ideas of progress, mm. um, the species-typical functioning that there is a universal human body, um, 
And, 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 and in fact, it's, it's a lie, it's a fiction, because, um, you know, uh, and anthropology has helped us with this, because people's physical bodies, are the, the, the shape of them, uh, the muscle structure, um, their flexibility, their capacity, changes according to how we use them. So if you're somebody, for example, who's used to walking 20 kilometres a day, sorry, miles, um, um, you know, your body is going to be very, very different if it's a, if it's a culture that... Um, uh, emphasises a different kind of synergy behind hearing what you hear and even the frequency levels will change. Mm. So I think the thing is, as I said, ideas of productivity. Mm. Speaking of history, the one that I love um, is a, a story and I love it to tell students because everybody thinks this is really modern stuff, you know, these postmodern people, they go on. And I, there's a lovely... Um, uh, letter. I think the guy, and I'm probably not going to pronounce it correctly, Marcus Sergius. And, and anyway, the, the letter is called, um, uh, basically, it's on, on applying for a pension. And, and, and I think this was like um, uh, 3 BC. Don't quote the dates, but a long, long time ago. He was a, he was a, um, a Roman general, right? And, 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 and what I loved about it was, oh, my God, they had pensions back then you had to, and you had to kind of, like, you know, come up with an argument uh, to get the pension. But the thing about this geezer, it was really amazing because he was a fighter. He was a soldier. He was the uh, personification of masculinity. So this is also the other thing about particular ideas of masculinity. Anyway, in his battles, he lost his arms, he lost his legs, he lost every bit. Um, but the thing is, even back then, they had prosthetics. So he had the kind of artificial arms and artificial legs. So when he goes into this tribunal to apply for a pension, um, he says, I'm disabled, I can't work. And they, and they basically told him to, as we say in Australia, bugger off, you know, go away. You, 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 it was tied to a social role. You've got your artificial arms and legs. You still can fill that role of being a soldier. Therefore, you are able and it's a really interesting, and that's where history becomes extraordinarily powerful. As you can yeah. see, I'm very excited about it because, um, but certain people, men, so maleness is often seen as a form of ableism. It's the optimum, the best kind of human being to be in most societies and through most of history is to be male. Whiteness is a form of able-bodiedness. Heterosexuality is a form of able-bodiedness. These are about optimum things. And the more that we slip away from these, we're in really dangerous territory. Mm. Also, disabilities are, are, are... There's a hierarchy, yeah. isn't there? Yeah. Um, there are some disabilities which are seen as, as less um, upsetting or less difficult to live with or less, less difficult for other people to deal with. So you might be more employable if you've got one disability rather than another and mm. yeah. Um, yeah you know well we rank so, them do, right. you know, do you know the insurance policy manuals this is, I know it's late at night so it's always throwing these little humorous things but this is true stuff you, if you if you have damage to your penis versus damage to your p- vagina in a um, insurance manual for court cases a, a, a damaged penis is worth more worth more in, a, in terms of a percentage so the whole human body has been mapped in terms of uh, an assigned value for body parts and then you get money with it. So, yes, you're absolutely right. There's this absolute ranking. Mm. But I think the thing about ableism is it, it, it's what you said, it values productive, um, highly functioning, successful um, people who, who, who can, who can mm. kind of achieve these arbitrary kind of... Mm. Consistent, yeah. consistent performance, right. physical, emotional, 
This is where people with mental health issues get it in the mm. neck because instead of this idea of fluctuating emotions, we don't like that. We can't mm. deal with people with fluctuations. Well, it's very difficult to categorise and mm. put people in boxes if they keep moving, isn't it? So, so the point I wanted to make, just to finish, because I've been chatting a bit, is I actually think we need to talk about how ableism actually entitles certain people mm. and people want to hold on to that. And what would it be for people to recognise that their bodily and mental and emotional state actually gives them advantages and what would it be to actually let go of that and let some of the others in most of us actually in the door hmm? I'm glad you picked up on the kind of Roman early history because oh. I start modern I'm kind of 18, <laughs> 1700s onwards so that's great <laughs> but it's interesting to hear about prosthetic limbs from that time and uh, yeah and we're still having the same you know yeah, works yeah. and pensions claims yeah, where you know now it's what is it? You can only walk 20 metres, you have to walk 20... If you walk 20 metres, you can't get access to a benefit. Same deal, just happened back then. Yeah. yeah. What about the issue of uh, social inclusion? So if, if disabled people are trying to be included in, in a world that is inherently ableist, what are the kind of problems that are generated by that? I'm really mindful I'm chatting a bit here, but I get, seriously, I get really cranky because this is about changing attitude. Do you know what? It's happened to every minority group. We have to fit into the majority, those of us that come from marginal or disadvantaged communities. And it really gives me the shits because actually a lot of the disability policies are based on assimilation. Assimilate. How can you fit in? Mm. You know, you hear people with Down syndrome told to get plastic surgery to not make their ears look different. And people change cosmetically and in fact we've talked about there's a, there's a whole new field actually you're the medical person there's, there's been work done on what's called now cosmetic neurology so you can now take pharmacological drugs to make you cope with stress and think clearly and all those really nasty socially undesirable behaviors get repressed you know so i think actually social and cute i don't know what the uk's history is in this area because i haven't been here that long but it's used all the time in australia and um it really still is about assimilation. So we don't actually... It's about correcting disabled mm. people, which is actually what rehabilitation mm. is at. Mm. You hear horrible stories. Don't show... Make sure you wear a prosthetic. Don't let anybody see your arms, bits of arms missing or oozing bits or um, socially unacceptable behaviour because it's about teaching us, assimilating, mm. teaching us to be whatever seems to be able-bodied. And, the, and that, that brings us to that really interesting idea of passing, which, mm. which um, is something that, that disabled people are very, um, have, a, have a huge tendency to do, especially um, people who, who have maybe like a, a less visible disability or who, have, um, who are kind of able to, to, to like perform or play the role of an able or non-disabled person. Um, it's very tempting to, to, to kind of even, you know, to, even if it means um, really struggling to do things or putting yourself in dangerous situations, you know, like, um, so my, my white cane is a good example. Um, you know, if I'm, if I'm wearing sunglasses and I don't have my white cane, you can't tell that I'm partially blind. Um, and sometimes that's really relaxing for me. It's cool. just it's nice because you can kind of like you can just have a bit of a break from being being always on show and always the subject of everyone's gaze all the time. Um, but and I did that a lot when I was, was when I was younger, you know, because it's just easier. Um, it seems it feels easier. It's actually it turns out it's much harder because people you know you have to then perform this kind of um, non-disabled 
role, which which is really exhausting. Um, but um, it's it's disability is so you know there's so much about assimilation that people people are very taught to to perform you know to act look like everybody else because it will help you fit in and then you won't you won't have so many you know you won't look different and people won't treat you differently um, but of course the more people who look the same the more difference stands out so well, then yeah. so it completely mm. you know kind of contradicts itself it's also about judgment and I, I, I won't mention the names here but I had a conversation with a uh, an, another academic who suffers from, um, and that's her language, um, depression and anxiety, but she looks able-bodied, right? And so she's that passing stuff you were talking about. So, I mean, apart from telling a few friends, it wasn't really well known, but recently she's got a, a dog to help her with anxiety. Mm. And it, she said, it, and this is fairly new, but she said the reactions of like, why do you need this dog? So you actually get this judgment. Uh, surely you're not that bad. Um, is it just a? Ha- oh, we all need. Oh, people laugh. Say, oh, we need. We all need a happy dog. You know this kind of. And what does that do to people? Because I think that's the interesting thing. As you say, people think, well, people, the assumption is you're sitting there looking not looking like you're blind. Right. You know, kind of like, well, that um, must be yeah. cruisy. You know. Well, people kind of think, well, surely, what are you getting out of this? Like, what, what benefits are you getting? That what advantages are you getting that, I, that that I'm not getting because I don't use a white cane? And you know, it's it's, a, it's, it's an excellent, extraordinary special kind of, right. Right. Well, <laughs> mm. it's a really extraordinary, um, yeah, extraordinary view that people have. Mm. Uh, but I think, I mean, there's also the practical issues: is that you know, um, it's it's impossible for disabled people to be included in society if society is is has barriers. Um, so I mean, there's the obvious kind of, you know, stairs, okay, but also things like. Um, you know, reliance on visual information, um, not having sign language not tonight. Sign language tonight, for example. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so that excludes um, a whole bunch of people. You know, there's no audio description tonight either. So where were there pictures? I wouldn't. I wouldn't know. I went to a conference two weeks ago about about disability in football, um, and it was translate. There were simultaneous translators sitting at the back translating it into six different European languages, and there wasn't an audio description track alongside them which meant that I couldn't access any of the videos that were being shown. And it was a conference about disability. Mm-hmm. Um, and if, if those kind of conferences can't even think about basic access issues, then, the, you know, nothing's going to change in, in, the, in, the, in the way of social inclusion. Mm-hmm. I wanted to pick up on what you were saying about passing, because that's mm-hmm. something that's also historically contingent and very mm-hmm. interesting. And with, uh, in the modern period, when you get the development of whole prostheses industries and industries for hearing aids uh, and uh, kind of walking sticks and appliances for those with visual disabilities, they become more and more about disguising Mm. the disability. The limbs Mm. become the colour of flesh. Mm. Uh, The really interesting hearing devices from the Victorian period are disguised as um, headpieces for women and you could have hearing aids on the end of your armchair Mm. and you could have them disguised into fans. So this, um, the Victorian period is really kind of crucial in the construction yeah. of this idea of yeah. making your visible disability invisible mm-hmm. and passing. Emotions management. And, yeah. And now it's sexed up because you can get with cochlear implants. There's a little 
I don't know what it's called, but like it's a little shield. And you know how, I don't know how people do it. Some people see glasses as fashion accessories, so they have like multiple pairs and they match it to their clothing. I don't really understand it because I can't even afford to have one pair of glasses and revise prescription. But some people do that. It's like a fashion item. So what they've done with the cochlear implants, because they want to market, the companies have been trying to market this to teenagers and people in their 20s, is you can get these different colour mm. shield things. Again, to fashion it's the accessorization yeah 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 that's slightly different from making it invisible though, i know i know exactly kind of so the op- exactly which is nice. like yeah. with like when you can get like prosthetic um prosthetics which are kind of um Artwork, you know art yeah, exactly yeah. and are yeah. really decorative and are really kind of beautiful um but i think i'm fascinated by this this, this desire to hide to to, to make your yeah. disability invisible yeah. I mean yeah. that's and just yeah. yeah and there's been some historical work done on that with like and again you might have come across this because some of the early advancements in prosthetics like in I don't say early like uh, from the First World War was all these guys it was actually linked to masculinity mm. who, were, who were severely maimed because of this horrific warfare um, coming back to the United States mm. and um, it was about passing but it was also about trying to refashion a different form of masculinity so here's an interesting again yeah. a kind of linkage yeah and one of the earliest kind of post post-war uh, prosthesis companies was established by a former RAF kind of pilot who crashed crashed his plane and lost his leg and became this hero um, and this symbol of masculinity by founding his own kind of prosthesis company and, and, and de- demonstrating his masculinity yep. in that way, having come from this very kind of privileged, white, middle-class, male, military, uh, air force background mm. in the first place. So, um, yeah, that's very interesting to think about where those industries have come from initially and how they fit into the context mm. of the time. Mm. Can I just jump in one more thing about the passing thing? Because one of the interesting things is there's the passing, but we also, you know, out there in the community, and particularly the media, so I, I don't like me saying out there in the community because it gets a bit vague, but the media, it likes to have this fixed category. Who are the real, mm. genuine disabled? Like there's all these fraudsters, mm. right? And who are the um, non-disabled? And where you can see this play out, and I've just started looking at this, um, actually looking at Daily, Daily Mail and The Guardian and The Statesman, I think, um, there's been a huge debate in the last two years, and wait for it, is uh, about who can use mobility scooters. Mm-hmm. And, and at the moment, the licensing is only for people who are disabled. But one of the problems is, is lots of people are now using them because they're cheap. Um, you don't need to have a licence, um, even insurance. And given that we've got austerity has now induced this amazing poverty situation, that lots, masses and masses of people are using them. And it's been really interesting because the media has said this is like a war zone. This is the language they're using. But this idea about that these people are scroungers... I only learned that word when I came here. Mm. Scroungers, <laughs> lazy, obese. They're normally women, by the way. Um, but this thing about we, we, we have to make sure only real dis- I don't know how they're going to work out who is real the real disabled mm. and to make sure all these other people are banned from using it but as you say it's classist uh, oh shocking and, mm. and, and you know places in kind of deprived 
seaside towns, for example. Yeah, yeah. Um, Lined up outside the pub, all these scooters. It's like, <laughs> it was a shock for me. It's like scooter tourism. Yeah, you can, you can see them in Scotland, actually. It's, it's yeah. quite common to see the, like nine or ten scooters lined up outside of the public bar. Mm. Mm. Why does it matter? Why couldn't... Why should it shouldn't matter. Yeah. That's Every, the thing. Everyone, if, it, if it makes your life yeah. easier, use a scooter. Yeah. You know? Why should... This is... I mean, it's an example of a disabled gain, right? It, yeah. It disabled gain. It, it was... Scooters were invented for disabled people, yeah. but actually lots of people could, could find it. It shouldn't matter. And what, what I was really shocked about... And I, look, I don't... I'm not suggesting the media represents community's views out there, but actually... And look, you've got the Daily Mail, which is extremely conservative, and the Guardian's meant to be progressive, so it's quite different, you know, that's debatable, I guess. But the thing is that it, it, it's ferocious. Yeah. That the war imagery is being used, that there'll be havoc on the street. Every, people will be run over by these selfish, obese, lazy, scrounging women. Mm. This has parallels with the language of the new poor law in the 1830s really? about the deserving and undeserving mm. poor and who should benefit from welfare essentially and benefit payments and that is still the kind of language um, particularly of the Tory government not to politicise it too much but this language of the deserving and undeserving poor the undeserving disabled so the class class very much comes into the history of it and I think it's still very relevant today when we're thinking about disability Shall we take some questions from the audience? Um, hello. I just wanted to ask if you could elaborate on the aspect of disability and the barriers in the workplace. Um, so, for example, whether if or when you're going to disclose your disability as in fears of discrimination, which is very difficult to prove, or if you're someone like myself who does pass, who does get the job and ask for certain adjustments and then they're not made and then you're like, well, what do I do? Should I just pretend and fit in like everybody else in the workplace and then cause yourself harm? So, and then the aspect of trying to support yourself as an independent person, even though you do have a disability, but then having those barriers and then having the stigma of then taking the help that you might need from the government, let's say, because you struggled to get a job mm. in the first place. That's a really, um, that's a really good question. You know, with the uh, um, OECD, Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, um, reviewed international policies around access to the labour market yeah, for disabled people. And really, it was one of those quotes that jumps out of the pages at you. Because you know what it says? In most countries, the current policies actually make no difference. So there's something going on in the dynamics. I mean, um, I think, again, there is this thing about putting the cap out, the Oliver Twist thing of, of people feeling grateful to get access to reasonable accommodations. I think people don't really understand what that is. I think um, there are issues around productivity and I think there's now starting to be work done on this about looking at different ways that people can work. But also we, there's an assumption that sometimes we, need, we know all that sort of stuff in advance. But I think what happens is there's an, a natural, well, an unnatural attrition happening. Um, what I hear from some of the research forums I've been in is people feel that they they start becoming quite depressed. If they weren't depressed beforehand, they will become depressed. Is that because um, it wears people down, this thing of having to constantly ne- negotiate and fight um, yeah. for these exceptions? I mean, I think, mm. I think the problem is that employers um, will do the, the absolute minimum to stay on the right side of the law um, because their main priority seems to be productivity and money. 
um, and so they they're very that they're, they're very resistant to mm-hmm. accommodations um, because they don't understand that it will actually make make you more, you know a, a better worker if you're if you're working in a in an environment that suits you. Um, I mean, even the language mm-hmm. of disclosing yep. that word suggests that disability is kind of like quite an embarrassing secret that that yeah. you might or might not want to reveal. But that, that's part of the stigmatisation of disability, isn't it? It is. And, and you know what? The other thing is it's like also, again, another telling a story because actually, particularly as you go further up the system in different jobs, actually most employees negotiate accommodations. And boy, to those who are, impa- who are powerful and confident, they negotiate all sorts of accommodations, mm. days off cars, particular things in their office. Mm. Um, some even get their dry cleaning done. Mm-hmm. You know, um, but somehow our kind of accommodation gets marginalised or exceptionalised. Mm. And, um, and we yeah. get reputations of being difficult and argumentative and complaining. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is about, about benefits and claiming money from the government... Um, the, 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 the system's in place to support um, people who need it and disability is very expensive so I don't think anyone should ever feel uh, should ever subscribe to the kind of the, the shame of having to take money from the government or this kind of narrative of a scrounger it's, it's completely um, that's completely uh, created to, by, a, by, a, by an ableist <coughs> culture um, it, it's important that, that, that we get the support that we need, you know, wherever it comes from. Yeah, and can I say the ranking, we talked about ranking early in hierarchies, it gets into our, all our, it, it, each of us, it gets into our heads, it seeps into us. Because you know the phrase, oh, I shouldn't win, there's always someone worse off than me. And my, my, my rebuttal of that is to say, but you're the person that's actually experiencing it. Mm. You're not those people. And we do it often for ourselves. We think, well, maybe I'm imagining this or the idea of doubt. And part of ableism yeah. is this strength, this, this belief that you have to kind of be independent and strong and cope on your own and not yep. ask for help. But actually, it's much, it's, it's much, more, it's much stronger to know, to know when, when you, you, it would be better for you to do something in conjunction with someone else. This idea of kind of codependence on other people. So rather than everyone being isolated and independent, if we lived in a more codependent society yeah. where yeah. people kind of... Or, you know, shared their strengths but also their weaknesses, yeah. then you wouldn't feel I, I need to try and there wouldn't be this pressure to pass. Yeah. You know? And actually, you've raised a really important issue because, and again, I come from Australia, if you hadn't noticed already, um, that one of the things that happened, like with Indigenous, so First Nations people, we had, you talk, come back to your social inclusion issue, um, there are a number of so called successful Indigenous people, people who've um, being the kind of multicultural First Nations success story, they've got these amazing jobs and, you know, they're having families, and it's all happy, happy, happy smile. Um, now, what started happening in Australia is a lot of those, re- and they were really high-profile people, they started actually dying and com- committing suicide, right? And people think, well, what's going on here? And we've noticed, and the research has been done on that, it's also been happening in so-called disability success stories too. Mm-hmm. Again, I won't speak for the UK, but in Australia, I know a number of high-profile disabled people, the people who've made it, like really success stories, um, who have been known to have been publicly either committed suicide or, or within the grapevine, we know. so this, um, But it's this kind, again, this pressure to kind of say everything's OK, mm. that we fit it in, and we actually can't... 
Like even for me in my own job, I have really severe fatigue. I have to keep masking it. Luckily, being an academic, I can go and work at home some days. I'm just doing it horizontal in my mm. bed, you know. Um, and so it's this kind of thing about it, it, universities and employers like the happy success story, but at, at what cost? Mm. And so that's a really important research area. Why are all these successful First Nations people, or in this case, disabled people, taking their own lives? It's a, it's a, it's a, I would be very concerned about that. Really interested in what you were saying about codependency, Hannah, and it made me think about what you were saying earlier about um, disability giving us access to certain kinds of critical position. Because what you seem to be suggesting is that certainly kind of prevalent philosophical models of the subject and of personhood are flawed in some way. And that actually disability or certain kinds of disabled experience give us access to other ways of um, thinking about how we exist in relation with other people. Mm. Yeah, I think that's, that's, that's a really good point. Um, we do tend to, uh, our Western culture does tend to kind of um, privilege um, personhood mm. and, and this idea of a kind of, um, kind of unified, um, coherent um, individual um, but that's, I think that's hyper autonomous, right? Autonomy, mm. exactly. Um, independence, autonomy. These are these are these are kind of um, they, they come from philosophy, but they're the, they're the ideals that, that the medical establishment and the care system kind of aims for when in, in rehabilitation, for example. You know, some of the questions on kind of benefit claim forms: Are, are you able to independently do this and that? Well, why is that such an important um, criteria? What, why, why not? Why not kind of share? Um, you know, share experiences and share and, and become codependent and be codependent. I mean, we're all co- we're all dependent. We're all most of us are dependent on our on our prosthetic phones that are basically our our brain that we carry around with us. Sprung. It's just it's just a different kind of prosthesis. You know, it's not a person, but it's it's a it's a codependent kind of. Um, could be a person. I, I think it was a film made about yeah. that, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I think I think moving away from this kind of autonomous, independent. Um, individual, individualistic, because we do live, still live in a very individualistic society. It's very linked to kind of capitalism and yeah. success and progress as well, and and kind of you know just exploring ways of doing things that are more um, kind of mutual and more community based, perhaps. And arguably, that's down to the development of property rights. This yeah, is mine. That's interesting. That's yours. Yeah. Mm. We and don't then, have communal yeah. land. We don't share. Yeah. And yeah. that enlightenment tradition, just to link it back to history and philosophy, this idea of this kind of teleological view of history that, that history is moving. We are. We are. History is improving. Yeah. We are progressing. Yeah. This idea of continual improvement, and you hear about this. What is that? I mean, it sounds nice. Lifelong learning. You know. <laughs> I'm committed to lifelong learning, folks, but I'd like to say lifelong napping as well, by the way, too. But but it is interesting, isn't it? This kind of thing, this refresh, refresh, refresh. Let's make it all better. Progress. Yeah. Mm. I mean, life doesn't work like that. We aren't aren't continually progressing. History doesn't work like that. That's not what human life is about. Human experience isn't about continual progress. And yet this narrative in history and in everyday life is really strong, I think, mm. and difficult to... And we internalise it. That's mm. the thing. Yeah. Mm. Let's take some more questions. Okay, we'll take a, there's lots now, so we'll, we'll take a, a couple at once. Thank you. Um, my name's Maggie Ellis. I coordinate a European group about e-health technology, 
Um, I'm also an occupational therapist, and I have disabilities that are hidden, uh, so often people don't assume I'm disabled. One of my hidden disabilities is being deaf, with a particular kind of deafness, that hearing aids are useless. Mm And so it's particularly difficult in a place like this with a lot of background noise and you speakers, none of you using lapel microphones. That's custom and practice in the London School of Economics, I have to say. Not good communication. So that's point one. But I wanted to ask each of you two questions which are related to my comments about disability. I've been either on the staff or associated with LSE for 10 years. And this is the first event in the form of a lecture that's mentioned the word disabled. Um, I am fascinated that it's the Forum for Philosophy that organizes this event, because having suggested that other departments might arrange something remotely to do with the topic, one has never succeeded. I wanted to ask each of you two questions. I'd love one answer back, you know, one simple sentence back from each of you. And that is, obviously, when you planned this evening, you had a concept of what you wanted to achieve. And the other one I wanted you to take away with you, really, is what do you think you will have learned by this evening? Thank you. And let's take one more question. Yep. Hello, I'm Dr Lee Campbell. I work at University of Arts London. I was really interested when you were talking about speaking for um, this sort of idea around subjectivity. So part of my research is to uh, explore vision impairment and blindness, but I'm coming at that as um, as somebody who I don't classify myself as being visually impaired. And I was recently attacked in a a lecture that I was given by somebody who had a disability who was visually impaired and shouted out how, excuse my language, effing dare you for trying to understand what blindness might be like. Mm. Um, that, set quite a, yeah, that set quite a heated debate around ethics representation, sensory censorship. Um, can we explore beyond our own subjectivity was one of the questions. So I'd just be really interested mm-hmm. to to hear some of your views. I know you've, you've touched upon that. There was also something else I wanted to mention. There was a really interesting exhibition at the Wellcome Collection about five years ago called Superhuman, which was mm. all about prosthetics and yeah. making visible the invisible and vice versa. So yeah. that's sort of another... Thank you. Okay. Um, well, we were talking, just in terms of your question, we were talking about this beforehand because um, I... I actually found in a lot of mainstream conferences or seminars, um, actually most, and and among so-called progressive disciplines and the progressive people, that actually there's nothing on disability. Or if if there is a small session on disability at a conference, nobody turns up. Or it's the same people, you know what I mean? So I I, I was super excited uh, because actually I found that... um, certainly in the philosophy area, disability um, in a critical way hasn't been picked up. So, the, um, you know, so credit, credit, credit to you. I think it's... Um, hopefully the people who listen to this podcast um, will get a shock 
<laughs> because they hopefully won't just switch it off as soon as they say disability, but that they will be engaged so that in a conversation. So I think the issue about what do you want to achieve, I think it's uh, mainstreaming this mm. as part of different disciplines. Even for us, like yeah. I haven't met these other two people, or three, I haven't met these people before, and just even us having a conversation for me gives me hope because it's actually quite depressing. Mm. It's really depressing when you feel like you're um, going in circles. Even my own university, we don't do disability studies, so I don't teach any disability. I don't teach any disability work and I come to other places to mm. talk about disability and ableism. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's the point. It's, it's reminding people that disability is a, um, an identity in the same way that gender, um, gender race and... Um, sexuality are identities and it, it permeates every aspect of, um, of human existence and therefore it should be studied um, in every subject. So I, my, my primary specialism is French literature um, and I am lucky enough that I can teach critical disability studies as part of my, my, um, my work as long as I, as long as I, I, I centre it within French literature. Um, so, uh, but, but I, I actually think things are changing. I think, I think academia is becoming slowly more open to critical disability studies. Mm, and I think, that's, I think that's the point of philosophy as well, is that, is that is, we're talking about critical disability studies. So we're, we're kind of critiquing established models of disability and we're um, analysing how it um, can kind of how it can be rethought, repositioned, and, and what, how it, what, how it ben, brings benefits to, to everyone. And just to, to, to um, answer the other question about, um, about um, visual impairment, um, I think, I mean, uh, personally, I've, I, I'm very happy for everyone to speak um, about disability, whether or not they have personal lived experience. Um, I think there's enough kind of um, literature and um, kind of... Um, yeah, um, sources out there which which um, which you can read and which can kind of um, inform you. Um, I would I would kind of warn against the the slightly outdated practice of, of simulation, you know, of kind of handing around blindfolds, um, because that it's a very um, kind of um, it doesn't the the, the the point about disability as a lived experience is that it's it's a it's a kind of um, permanent lived experience. And there's textures to it, and isn't it? And it changes, yeah. absolutely. And also, everyone um, experiences their disability differently, especially blindness. Um, only 2% of people who are registered blind are completely blind. Um, and, and if you ask any person, I mean, one of, the, one of the questions I get asked the most is, what, you know, what can you actually see? Um, and I, that, I just can't answer that question. It's, it's you know, it's too, too, too complicated. But it, I can guarantee that it will be completely different from the answer you'll get from anybody else. So mm. it doesn't, in the end, it doesn't really matter. The, the, the kind of exact what people see and don't see doesn't matter. It's the experience of being um, a, a partially blind person in a sighted world is the experience to focus on, I would say. Mm. Can I just I have a little bit of a different take? And sorry I didn't get to your question on that. I think it's really difficult because the disabled people's voices and the very range of voices has been excluded. So unfortunately what happens in a lot of communities is people end up getting really pissed off. So that's why it gets a really difficult to debate. Maybe I think decency in articulating things would help 
with to, to, to look at those differences? Where do those differences matter? But also, and again, I don't know the circumstance, so this is not about your situation particularly, but I think, for me, I think people do need to declare about what their investment is in an issue because we come to different issues for different reasons. Mm. And some people I know, I've spoken to people who identify as able-bodied, who do disability research, and they'll, and sometimes it'll be a really indirect thing. They just fell in love with the issue, or, or maybe they did have a family member or, or something else like that. But I actually think that, that kind of those kind of conversations are important because we might have different investments, um, and some of those investments are made to matter. Some of us can't walk away, metaphorically or otherwise, from the issue at the end of the day. You, mm. you know, it's not something you can turn the light off. Um, and I think because the other thing is about getting back to medicalism is actually uh, lots of people speak for us or explain, mm. explain mm. for us. And, mm. uh, you know, I had somebody recently the other day who, um, I'll be circumspect, but basically it was a person who didn't identify as disabled, um, Work for an equalities organisation who wanted started lecturing me on what the disability experience was, you know, and how I should respond. And that's where it becomes we we we, we would call that out if somebody was lecturing a white person was lecturing a person of colour about what being a person <coughs> of colour what that involves. Mm. I think we would call that out. So why don't it's so normalised that kind of power issue? Mm. Yeah, I just I I would just add to it. I think that's a good point about um, the marginalisation gets people angry, mm-hmm. um, and, and rightly so in a lot of mm-hmm. cases. But um, I don't know what the answer is other than, as you say, just to be quite open and honest about your intentions. And um, I've certainly experienced some um, hostility. In, in, the, in the deaf community and I felt mm-hmm. like the British deaf community are particularly strong in their own cultural uh, their own culture, their own language their own kind of um, but as I say that, that um, some, uh, one of the deaf community said well you're okay because you're, you know, your family are deaf so come in sort mm. of thing and it was really mm. and that was really eye opening for me so I, I don't know what the answer is I only have that kind of personal Experience, um, but I think, as you say, there is this long, well, and this long history of being not listened to and being spoken for, mm. which might help explain that. Mm. Um, and in terms of your question about um, what do you want to achieve and what have we learned, I think um, it's easy for historians to kind of sit in dusty archives a lot of the time and think this is really fascinating stuff but actually getting involved in debates like this brings it relevance brings its relevance to today and that I think you don't want to be anachronistic about the way in which we draw on history to think about the present but at the same time there's got to be relevance in the historical work that you do and I think that's extremely important and the historical context is always always important and enlightening on every issue and this issue in particular I think so I'll always be the one that would go oh there's a history to that oh that's constructed oh you know because that is enlightening on our current situation and also can be useful for seeing where we go from here into Mm. the future so that was what I've got from it I think okay let's take a couple more questions then 
This is great. Two this in the front row. disability is seen is a reductionist term okay mm-hmm. and as and using the term disability makes it very difficult for the for the disability community um, given that we are a wide and very very diverse community thank you we'll take one more before we answer that um, hi I'm a student of political theory and of course very recently we have realized that in drawing the boundary of what counts as human we have excluded a huge chunk of people throughout history. Uh, but one of the things that I often think about is, uh, is it enough to say that we just need to normalize, for example, what we think of disabled right now, and also give, make our workplaces accessible, make our schools accessible? Or are there certain structures within the society which are inherently inaccessible? For instance, we have a certain grading system which might not be accessible to people with various mental abilities, or we celebrate our festivals in certain ways, we have our transportation system figured out in certain ways. So do you think a more inherent change is needed, or do we just need to make what we have accessible? Thank you. So one question about disabilities being a reductionist term and how useful is it, and the other about whether we can just, the issue is just making things more accessible, or whether there needs to be a deeper change. Mm. yeah, with the dis- I actually don't really care what term people use. I mean, I'm involved as an administrator of a Facebook group and we use disabled in the title. But some people, depending on where they're on in their journey, refer to themselves as chronically ill. Some people, deaf people, sometimes capital D, deaf people, don't see themselves as mm. disabled. Then you've got the neurodiversity. So... I don't think I, I'm not worried about the word. Yeah, I think I think, yeah. I think that's right. I think yeah. we all we all kind of accept that it's not ideal, um, but but we need something. We need a we need a, a, a word that we can kind of use yeah. as an umbrella, yeah. I suppose. And you can refashion it. You know, yeah. you can refashion it very quickly in terms of your question. Yeah, you do need you do you do you can't. The normalising stuff, that's what I'm saying, the normalising stuff's not enough. We need that's why we need to focus on the idea of ableness and who benefits and who loses. And that does mean that there are structures in place that keep holding that up and and helping it replicate itself in different ways. But realistically, we can't, you know, we can't kind of collapse everything and start again. So we have to kind of start with what we've got. But, you know, it's a bit like... um, I've been thinking a lot about... um, 
um, audio description and access to, to theatre for blind people. And what, what typically happens at the moment in cinema and theatre is that the, the, the play or the, or the film is created and then the, um, the audio description track is added at the end. Mm. Okay. But what we really need to do is to create the film or play with the audio description mm-hmm. from the beginning, incorporated, integrated, so that it's accessible to everyone. And that, that could be a model that we could follow throughout mm. whatever we're doing. So rather than um, you know, building a building with stairs and then adding a ramp, what about just, just building the, the building with the ramp to start with? I think okay. they call it anticipated diversity. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, or, you know, in the curriculum... Um, in the university curriculum, what about designing courses which have, which are um, accessible to all different types of students and all different weight styles of learning or learning preferences or neurodiversity from the outset, rather than then having to make accommodations and adjustments later on? Or in the workplace, what about just you know making it so that everyone can work in the way that suits them from the beginning, rather than having this kind of normative structure and then some people being obliged to ask for changes you know what if we lived in the society where the changes were already there so that's universal design really i suppose i think yeah i think disability absolutely is a term as a language is completely reductionist and it, it doesn't have um it doesn't convey the complete diversity of experiences or uh anything but I would just come back to this point about um, it emerges from a particular point in history where it is convenient to label lots of people in this way um, for um, state welfare, for pensions for um, medical treatment um, and it's a term of convenience that for the state and for the medical profession that's never never gone away mm. so I think um, it's useful to keep it to because actually we need to recognise that there is a history to that term, um, but it's what we do with it and how our language changes as we change um, in the present that is important. It also reminds us of the inherent ableism of the world by its very formulation, so that's kind of useful as well. Yeah. We've got five minutes, so maybe time for two very quick questions. So, one here. such a good question that's such yeah. a good question I mean I, I oh sorry you're going to have to take another question yep. first yeah. one at the front and then when there was one at the back there was one at the back yeah <laughs> super quick if you can <laughs> I am temporarily disabled at the minute <laughs> um, I, I'm very privileged to have worked in the arts uh, since I come to London in 1988 and in that time I've worked in nothing but disability arts and I think, I suppose this question is heading towards this, you were just saying there about good practice in the theatre and the arts, which I think we are probably leading the world at the minute with the Unlimited Festival and Dada Fest and all the rest. Um, I uh, wondered, are there any other examples of good practice out there, and not just the arts? Yeah. 
Thank you. Should we try and squeeze in that third mm, question? Was yeah. it the back? Yep. <laughs> Thanks for fitting me in. Um, I was just wondering today, we spoke a lot about um, what needs to be improved, and I completely agree that a lot needs to be improved. But I'm just wondering, in the field of um, disability studies, are there any countries or um, communities or cultures which are generally viewed as quite exemplary or more advanced than others when it comes to inclusivity and disabilities? What can we take as examples, what societies or communities? Thank you. That maps quite nicely onto the previous question about good yeah. practice. Yeah, and also the question about Spain as well. Um, I mean, did I... In terms of, the, very quickly, the, the debate about um, integrated education rather than separated education, um, it's, it's, it's a fact that we could have had a whole session just about that, actually. Um, I, I love this, the, the idea of having um, disabled children in, in the classroom with non-disabled children, um, provided that the teaching methods uh, provide for everyone, so that there's a kind of you know, universal approach to teaching. Um, the problem comes when you know, the, the disabled children are expected to assimilate, as we were saying, and to keep up with or you know, learn by, by methods that are not adapted to them. I mean, I was, I was quite interested to hear whether you thought it was a, um, a good system growing up in Spain, but I guess that's, we can talk about that afterwards, I know. Yeah. Can I jump in about the ideal culture? I think appearances can be deceiving. For example... Uh, there's a normalisation, for example, of physical access in the United States, the Americans with Disabilities Act, which is used as a template for, for other countries, and yet we know because of the absolutely outrageous healthcare system that they've got um, and racism and poverty levels that actually... Yeah, all this access happening, but it's like a twilight zone because then you've got all these people who are shut out and undignified. So I, th I, I, I don't think there's any ideal system. Some countries do it better than others in certain areas. Claire, you've got the last word. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, the history of education and mainstreaming and inclusion in that is a very interesting area. And um, anecdotally hearing about my grandparents who went to deaf school, met at deaf school and were being... T and were but at the same time were taught to fit in. Mm. Even though they were segregated, they learned mm. to speak holding a balloon to feel the vibrations, and that always really mm. struck me mm. as... But they had role models, didn't they? Other deaf people, they met other mm. deaf people. Yeah. That's a real, that's Which, a really good point. So they yeah. met each yeah. other, but yeah. they were taught yeah. Um, yeah. to fit in yeah. again yeah. Um, by... by, by by passing as being able to hear, by being able to lip read and, and to be able to speak and by feeling the balloon, to be able to feel what it was like to speak with their own kind of voice. Um, so, yeah, that is not a great note. I guess it's quite an interesting note to end on, but it's not necessarily very profound or uh, well, groundbreaking. Peer, peer mentoring is really like where do disabled people get to? meet other disabled people who've lived their lives who can share the wisdom. Yeah, that's a big question. That's a nice moment to end on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, thank you all for coming. Join me in thanking our speakers.